Welcome to this APTA podcast. Welcome to PTJ Author Interviews. PTJ Editor-in-Chief Alan Jetty talks with authors about the most interesting and sometimes surprising aspects of their work. And now, Dr. Jetty. I want to welcome listeners to this latest PTJ podcast. I'm Alan Jetty, Editor-in-Chief of PTJ. And today I'm very pleased to have two guests with me. I have Mr. John Ware. He's with the Infirmary Therapy Services in Mobile, Alabama, and Dr. Thomas Hoogeboom. He's with the Radboud University Medical Center in Nijmegen, the Netherlands. Welcome to both of you. Thank you Thanks for having us. us. I'm really interested in today's uh, article that we're going to discuss. The title is A Systematic Appraisal of Conflicts of Interest and Researcher Allegiance in Clinical Studies of Dry Needling for Musculoskeletal Pain Disorders. As you guys talk about in your article, this is really an underappreciated area of research, and so I really welcome the opportunity to talk to you about it. I'm just going to give a little synopsis for our listeners, and then we'll launch into a discussion. Uh, This is a pragmatic, systematic search that the authors undertook and they wanted to identify dry needling studies that were included in systematic reviews, where information regarding both conflict of interest and research or allegiance were extracted from full text of the published reports. In addition, and I found this really interesting, the authors also sent a survey inquiring about the presence of researcher allegiance. And a secondary analysis was also undertaken to look at quality and risk of bias scores that were extracted from the systematic reviews uh, from each of the study. So there are several components uh, of this study, which I think was really valuable. Uh, To begin with, let me ask each of you, if you would, talk a little bit about what got you interested in studying conflict of interest as well as researcher allegiance. If uh, I make the, uh, take this first one, uh, John. Yes. Um, go ahead, Tom. So during my work as a physical therapy researcher, I, I was at some point asked to uh, be part of a PhD thesis that looked at the mobilization of the cervical spine of infants. And I immediately noticed that I was being highly critical of this approach. And that resulted in me being extra critical on all the decisions that we made during the research process. At some point I started wondering, like, why am I this critical? I I hardly recognize myself in this process because normally I'm a guy who can see the pragmatic side of things and can understand that not, not everything is perfect. So at that point I realized I, probably had some, for a better word, disallegiance towards this specific intervention into this specific patient group. And then I realized I've never had this feeling regarding any of my other work, probably meaning that I have some sort of an allegiance to all of that work, which, uh, of course, I think is logical. We're all trained in a certain uh, way. We have our own preferences, our own experiences. But during my master's training 
as a human movement scientist after I graduated as a physical therapist, I was always kind of, they gave me the feeling like the most esteemed value of a researcher was that you were objective. And it's now, I'm now at a point in my career that I don't believe that objectivity is a thing anymore. I think we need to have conversation about subjectivity in research. And I want people to understand that that's not a problem. It's not a thing that we need to fear. I think it's a thing we need to embrace and it will help us grow as a profession in the long term. So yeah, in in short or long, (laughs) that's how I got into this topic. And then I met this uh, guy in America, John. Right. And um, I've been having conversations with other like-minded, and I want to emphasize like-minded therapists for probably a couple of decades about the direction that the profession is going with embracing manual therapy approaches, manipulation, and questioning the really the value of what I will term coercive techniques that tend to and the whole process of medicalization that I've been seeing in the healthcare uh, writ large. And um, so uh, as I've seen the literature um, in manual therapy and, um, and then dry needling kind of moving in a way that seemed like uh, these, these approaches were, were gaining more ground, more, gathering steam in the profession, I started to question, and again, this is my bias, if this was really the direction the profession should go. And and reading the the literature, I just, and we'll talk about some of the, the specific studies, I think some of Chad Cook's work in this regard, that uh, I started to question just whether that was the right direction for the profession to be headed and wondered if if the research was taking into account all of these various factors that go into um, the clinical interaction with a patient, and I, um, and that's really what got me interested in looking at how the the uh, you know I've got my as Thomas said I've got my own allegiance and my own ideas, but I'm uh, you know I don't think I'm unique in that regard. I think a lot of other people have their own ideas and their own allegiances and biases, I guess you can call them. Um, uh, And it may be affecting the research. So that's after um, talking with Thomas and a couple of the other people involved early in this project, Kenny Veneer, one of our authors, and then Kyle Ridgway, who assisted somewhat with uh, um, some of the data collection very early on, um, uh, we decided to take it to the next step. Let me ask then, why did you pick dry needling? Uh, well, given what you've just said, John, there are many different interventions you could have picked. Why, why dry needling? Well, that's where the uh, discussion with Kyle Ridgway and Kenny Veneer kind of came into play because they, they published uh, a letter to the editor in the Journal of Manual and Manipulative Therapy after a systematic review by uh, Bob Boyles was published in that uh, in 2016. And I, it was a very compelling letter where they brought up a lot of these factors about the quality of that research. Um, you know, they their argument was that their uh, the recommendation by the Boyles group was too strong. 
that uh, they weren't taking into account a variety of factors that I alluded to in my first answer about nonspecific effects, uh, not to mention some of the other just methodological issues that uh, uh, appear in, in a lot of these, uh, a lot of the included trials in the in the Boyle's review, and um, and frankly, I was I was talking about these, you know. Manual therapy is one thing, but when when it gets to the point where we're going through the skin um, with an with a needle, I I felt like that was a a jump for the profession. I felt like we were taking a leap um, into doing something that was, I, I think, uh, going out of our character, maybe a bit. And if it's justified, it's justified. But I think we needed to stop and take a look and see, you know, this is an invasive procedure. Um, it's not without risks. But even even though, though now we know the risks seem to be minor, I still was concerned about um, the character of the profession changing. Um, I mean, other than wound care, which I have, I think that's a legitimate role of PT. Um, P, uh, physical therapists were not in the, this was new, putting needles into patients. So um, I don't want to say I was alarmed, but concerned. Before we talk in more detail about your study, I think it would help listeners if you could um, distinguish between and describe your definition of conflict of interest versus researcher allegiance. And then we can go into more detail into your study. Right. Um, well, we we conceived of researcher allegiance as a type of like non-financial conflict of interest. Um, we we make the distinction in our in our in the introduction of our article between conflicts of interest and the, the traditional understanding of that being where there's a financial interest that uh, can uh, interfere with the researcher's judgment um, and increase the risk of bias. Researcher allegiance, which is uh, a concept that's been more highly developed in the psychotherapy literature. I haven't really seen it other than our initial treatment here. I haven't seen it addressed as such in the physical therapy literature or even the medical literature, but we conceived of that as being a non-financial type of conflict of interest where the researcher has just a, a preference for a particular intervention. Now, it gets fuzzy, though, when we start thinking about, you know, what, what drives that preference within the context of a research of a trial or a study. And that's the question we wanted to address with our colleagues in the study, you know, what is in the minds of the researchers as are they taking into account all the factors that can be affecting their preference for a particular intervention, and in this case, dry needling. So although we made that distinction of uh, RA being a non-financial type of uh, a conflict of interest, I don't think it's that clear cut. Um, and I think our study kind of addresses that as we found, you know, a lot of the Researchers are involved in continuing education courses, and that's a big business in our industry. So, although that line we try to we tried to draw that line, it's not clear yet that there is a a distinct line between those two concepts. Okay, 
In, in your article, when you talk about researcher allegiance, you talk about how it can be harnessed to produce what you refer to as potentially proper bias, which is a phrase I'd never heard before. Could you talk a little bit about potentially proper bias and why you think that's uh, something important to consider? Yeah, let me take this one, uh, Ellen. So uh, the term improper bias and potentially proper bias was, I think, actually coined by John Ioannidis. Uh, he's one of the uh, great names in uh, meta-epidemiological studies. And he wrote a study on psychotherapy where we he recommended psychotherapists to actually embrace this type of researcher uh, allegiance to some extent. Um, and um, his reasoning for that was actually quite interesting. So uh, if you view researcher allegiance as an improper bias, um, then you'll need to do anything in your capabilities to prevent that. So if you think about that for a while, uh, that would mean that all PT, uh, physical therapy, uh, rehabilitation research might need to be done by non-physical therapists or rehabilitation personnel because we are invested into this profession in, in, in some way, shape or form. Um, John has, like other John, Ioannidis, has proposed that all uh, systematic or uh, guidelines should be written without the input of specialists, uh, but that idea never really has been adopted. So perhaps we should see it as a potentially proper bias from the perspective that in our field, we are dealing with modest effect sizes, typically. So if we have a, a group of researchers and they're also therapists and they're doing everything in their ability because they're convinced in their own hypothesis and their own intervention that it will work. And they end up demonstrating these small effect sizes. That should be a cue to us understanding, like probably we shouldn't be implementing this worldwide. If all the best of the best, the most invested, interested people can only realize a small effect, that doesn't bode well for the rest of uh, the PT community in my perspective. So rather than trying to neutralize this idea of researcher allegiance, uh, John Ioannidis has said, like, we might need to capitalize on it. Uh, so it's an, it's an interesting thought. When I started this whole project, and it, it kind of feels like a confession boot uh, here, Ellen, uh, because I want to be completely honest here, I, I would like to tell everyone who's listening that I did this because I'm completely disinterested in the whole topic of dry needling. And um, it was just the perfect case for research or allegiance to be studied. That's probably not the case. The case was that I, my hypotheses already were that uh, some of these effect sizes might, might have been larger than one might expect. And um, it's always easier to look at something in which you're less interested to say like they are doing it wrong. And I think that was the way I started this project. But down the line, I, I'm seeing it everywhere in every trial on exercise therapy, on my, in my own studies, 
in my conversations with colleagues, I see researcher allegiance everywhere. And I think um, trying to neutralize that, it's just the wrong way to go about it. But we have to be honest about this topic, uh, maybe get it out of the uh, tab taboo uh, spheres. And um, yeah. It's a complicated area. And as I listen to the two of you, it really, it strikes me in, in several different ways. But one thing that I've always felt at the bare minimum, it seems to me we should universally be acknowledging where we have potential conflict of interest and allegiance in the work that we do as researchers. It seems to me that's the bare minimum. And in some areas, we have to do much, much more, like blinding assessors and, and so forth, so we can actually control for potential conflict of interest. Now, the reason I, I go there is because of my next question. And this was really shocking to me, I have to say, as a, a journal editor. Uh, you identified sis 16 systematic reviews, and you they contained 60 studies of dry needling, 58 of which were randomized controlled trial. Only 56% of the studies had a conflict of interest disclosure statement. So th that in and of itself really shocked me. Only 56%, almost half, had no conflict of interest statement. None reported any conflict of interest. <laughs> I had to read that several times. It really shocked me. So we're led to believe in 60 studies of dry needling, there are no conflicts of interest involved. What do you think is going on there from your perspective? I don't want to indict anybody, but I think people are going through motions on this and they don't necessarily have a clear idea of what uh, COI encompasses. And I think the surveys on uh, of RA kind of helped to clear that up because that was almost the complete opposite flip. When we inquired about these different elements that could produce bias, the, none of these authors had a problem providing all this information and directly answering these questions about, do you teach? Do you advocate? Did you train the clinicians providing the needling? So we speculate that maybe there's some defensiveness that people are automatically, when they read, if they see uh, that there's a COI reported, that they don't even read it because they dismiss it out of hand. I'm not really sure, but uh, the fact is that, that not a single one of these studies declared any conflict of interest. And it was a very brief kind of canned statement. The authors report no conflicts of interest, something to, of that nature. Of the 53% of the studies that actually had a statement, almost half of them didn't even have a statement. If I may... Uh... Yeah. Add on that, John, like a yeah, little please. example that, that I had. Uh, so John and I were doing this research and at some point COVID uh, hit and uh, I was also doing some research on COVID and one of the, the larger Dutch national bodies for healthcare asked me to work on a statement for the Dutch government to recommend what kind of care we would need to give uh, to people with COVID. And then uh, I had to fill out the conflict of interest uh, statement uh, beforehand as well. So I was working with, with John on this thing. So I looked at the conflict of interest paper and I thought, well, let's just fill it out 
as well and as honest as I could. So I wrote down at some point in the non-financial conflict of interest, being in this group will help me uh, have better chances of academic growth within my institute. I submitted that. And then you have your first meeting, you get to know each other and you talk about your conflicts of interest. And then the, uh, the person in charge said, Thomas, you had an interesting one. You said that being here will help you grow your academic career. Well, we're happy for you, but we're not writing this down. And then he removed this statement from my conflict of interest form. While I felt kind of like an imposter being on this big committee, asking myself, like, why am I here? Do I really have the right knowledge to give such an important uh, statement here? And I felt like it could easily be also, to some extent, me wanting to be on this committee to have this academic growth. But we don't like to talk about stuff like that. And I think it's important that we're honest and open about these kind of things, even though they make us feel awkward in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, I have to say, I couldn't agree with you more. I think for years we have underappreciated non-financial conflicts of interest. I've always felt in, in my career in academia that there are strong non-financial conflicts of interest all around in, in the work that we do. But most people tend to interpret conflict of interest more narrowly as you were pointing out, John, as um, financial, which is why I think that there's some appeal to your concept of researcher allegiance, taking it out of the realm of conflict of interest and, and calling it something different. And, and maybe doing that will lead to people being more forthcoming in reporting those types of factors so that the reader uh, can understand where you're coming from. But, you know, the one you reported with the COVID committee, Thomas, there's nothing wrong with that non-financial conflict of interest, but it's useful for the reader to understand and appreciate it. It doesn't mean it's bad, but a lot of people consider it as a negative, which I think is a misinterpretation, which leads me to another question. And, and here, Thomas, I'm coming at it from the point of view of being an editor of PTJ. And you're, of course, on the editorial board, so you have some skin in this game. What can we do as journal editors to do a better job? Because if one thing really comes through in your study is that right now, journals aren't doing a very good job of getting this information out there for the reader. So what should we be doing? to do a better job in getting this information out and available to, to our readers? Yeah, I, that's a really good question and um, also quite a difficult one. As you know, on the editorial board, I've sometimes complained that we're too much focused on our own journal. And I, I think some aspects not only impact us at PTJ, but impact the whole field which requires us as journals to work together with other journals much more and much closer. I don't want to see them as competitors. I want to see them as institutions who help build our profession and take it to the next level. So if we're very good 
at asking for conflicts of interest, I think we should share that information. At the same time, I'm also an author in your journal, uh, Alan, and I think the current format should and could be much better in helping people understand what these different elements mean. It's so abbreviated, so short, that you don't really have a feeling like, what does it all mean? Uh, Sometimes it's not even clear to me whether I have to name the sponsor of the trial itself. And then I'm I'm just one of the co-authors. And every author on a paper goes through this this forum by themselves with their own ideas and their own maybe fears of if I report this, maybe it won't be published. So the most important thing, in my opinion, is that we need more information going out to uh, authors, to uh, researchers. We have to get like a uniform way of asking for conflicts of interest, not a different form or no form at different uh, journals. I I think that's the most important step. And as I said before, uh, we have to get it out of the uh, taboo area. And this just needs to be something that we do and we do well. Yeah, yeah, that, that would be largely my recommendation. Yeah, that's very helpful. There actually is an International Society of Rehabilitation Journal Editors, and that's the forum that we could um, could use to do exactly what you're you're talking about. We clearly need to do a better job. It, uh, lastly, I want to ask one more question that really struck me because uh, in my role as editor, I've learned a lot more about qualitative research. I, I don't do qualitative research, and so it's been a really kind of eye-opening for me. But there is a concept in qualitative research that you make reference to, and it's called reflexivity, which I I think makes a whole lot of sense. And you talk about in your article how it may have some relevance to the work that we do in quantitative research. Could could you guys talk a little bit about that? Because I think listeners might find that very interesting. Yeah, definitely. So reflexivity It's actually a quite a difficult concept. I think there are a lot of ideas about what it means and what it is. Uh, So I, before this uh, podcast, I looked up a definition, which says reflexivity is a set of continuous collaborative and multifaceted practices through which research researchers self-consciously critique, appraise, and evaluate how their subjectivity and context influence the research processes. So in qualitative research, you typically have this paragraph in which researchers will tell them how their ideas and how their education uh, have potentially impacted the way they ask questions on which they would uh, ask follow-up questions and maybe other things they wouldn't. Perhaps they would reflect on the analysis they used to look at the results on how they interpreted the findings. And again, because in in quantitative research, we have this this almost mythical idea of objectivity where every decision is just the best decision we made. That's completely ridiculous. I like a multivariable linear regression. I don't know why, but I'm trained in that way. So when I see a let's say mixed models approach, 
I already become skeptical. So maybe I'm always picking the multivariable linear regression model as the way to analyze my results, which might not be logical. If I were to look at how much people are active, I could pick probably 20 different types of questionnaires or tools that I could use. For some reason, I, I pick one when I do this research. Why? What is it in me that selects this one thing? When I'm thinking of in an exclusion criteria for a randomized clinical trial, why do I end up with a specific selection of some sort? What is it in my reasoning? So there are so many decisions that our subjectivity in some way impacts. And again, that is not a problem. That is logical. But when you're reading a paper, not understand that things like these are going on and that there had been like no numerous different approaches on how to do this study. I, I think that's important. So only like the beginning of this year, a really good paper came out, uh, like a beginner's guide on reflexivity in quantitative research. And they pose a number of probing questions that you have to ask yourself and your team while doing research. And um, it's actually quite interesting to, to look at it that way, constantly asking, why am I doing this? And am I the right person to do this? Yeah, so I, I really think this is an, uh, an interesting way uh, maybe to enrich quantitative research in, in the future, but it will take a, a, a huge leap for us to actually start doing this, I, I'm afraid. Yeah, but I, th I think it's really interesting to think about and to begin talking about. It's the kind of thing that would not be terribly difficult to implement. It would require an extension of the limitations paragraph that's standard in all of our research articles to basically have a paragraph talking about potential areas of reflexivity that the reader should be aware of. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, but then you have your personal reflexivity, your team reflexivity, your interpersonal reflexivity, your methodological reflexivity, your uh, analysis and conclusion uh, reflexivity. So it becomes already yeah. quite big. And at the same time, doing it afterwards, and I think that's the risk here, like, oh, we also need a reflexivity paragraph. Uh, where you do it afterwards, that's problematic. I think if we want to really change things, we need to embrace it and start doing it. Uh, so I, I could see like protocols being published where researchers already wrote down which in which phases they're doing what type of reflexivity in their uh, reflexivity activities in their research. And that will be more challenging to implement, I think. My immediate reaction is you have to put some boundaries around it to make it more manageable. <laughs> it scares me. <laughs> to listen to you talk about it, Thomas, it scares me, I have to admit. <laughs> I would well, just add that, that of that interpersonal uh, reflexivity component really comes into play in the clinic, which is where I live, because we're interacting with this patient, a very complex um, interaction, a very, you know, building alliance and all these terms around that has been gaining steam lately with patient-centered care. If the research starts addressing it, I think it will carry into, we'll get a better dyad going between the clinic 
And the researchers, just we just need to acknowledge that these things affect the way we interact with patients. It affects the, it affects the outcomes. Um, and we just need to get a better handle on how that's how it's affecting the outcomes uh, of the research, how it's affecting our outcomes in the clinic, and just start acknowledging it and get a better handle on these things as we try to improve outcomes and also get a handle on costs. Well, I want to thank both of you both for publishing your article in PTJ and for talking about it with me today. I think you've raised a lot of issues and a lot of food for thought, and I would recommend to our Listeners, uh, please take a look at the article. I think you'll find it very informative. Thank you. Thank you. You can find more APTA podcasts like this one on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, or by visiting apta.org slash podcasts. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.